Hello and welcome to this special edition of Inside Briefing. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Things are becoming clearer in the US, although no thanks to the president. Joe Biden has won the presidential election. US media organizations have pronounced to widespread agreement at home and abroad that Donald Trump is refusing to concede. The president, and Trump is still president until January the 20th, has dismissed the election result as the result of fraud and is attempting to bring legal action against the results in some states. And yet leaders around the world, including Boris Johnson, have been congratulating President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. So we fired up the virtual studio to look at where this goes from here, what a Biden presidency will do, and how Britain should respond. Alice Lilly, an IFG senior researcher who's got a doctorate in US-UK politics, is with us. Hi, Alice. Hi, Bronwyn. Uh, we're joined again by Mark Landler, the New York Times uh, London Bureau Chief. Mark, thanks for joining us. It's good to be here, Bronwyn. And great to be joined, too, by Henry Zeffman, Washington correspondent at The Times. Thanks for joining us after a week working across all the time zones of the US and the UK. Thank you very much for having me. Anyway, let's start with you. Former President George Bush has issued a statement welcoming Biden. How will the Republican Party respond to Biden and Trump's refusal to concede? Well, there's a real disconnect between the Republican Party as it was before Donald Trump transformed it and took over it uh, in 2015-2016 and the Republican Party as it is now. Uh, as you say, George W. Bush has effectively acknowledged that Joe Biden is, is the president-elect and Kamala Harris is the vice president-elect and called them and given them warm wishes. Uh, Mitt Romney, who uh, was the Republican presidential candidate in 2012 before Donald Trump, uh, has done the same. Uh, and various sort of Bush-era luminaries, Condoleezza Rice this morning, for example, George Bush's Secretary of State. But among the current Republican ranks, uh, it's a kind of... Uh, you know, close your eyes and hope that the problem eventually resolves itself. Uh, I think Mitt Romney is the only Republican senator who's acknowledged it. It's going to, but so you, you think the Republican uh, Party, um, and particularly those uh, in office at the moment in, in Congress, they will just try to sidestep this? Pretty much. I mean, there's been a few Republicans in Congress who, who haven't tried to sidestep it, but have, have embraced Donald Trump's allegations of electoral fraud. Uh, Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz, for example, uh, senators for South Carolina and Texas, respectively, uh, were both pretty quick onto the airwaves, uh, raising questions, uh, pretty baseless questions, by the way, about what's happened in Pennsylvania, which was the state which eventually put Joe Biden over the top. Uh, but, but, but look, I mean, I, th- I think basically what is happening is, is that everyone is tiptoeing around Donald Trump's feelings. Uh, they know that he doesn't want to acknowledge that he's lost. Um, I can't see any of these legal challenges going anywhere. So I think really uh, we will have a better clue of how the Republican Party is going to respond once he has left the White House on January the 20th. And these people like Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz can stop having to having to collude in the charade. Mark, what do you think Trump is actually trying to do? Really hold on, leave without accepting defeat or in fact whip up his base for 2024, as some of his colleagues have suggested? Well, I think that... I think Henry's right to focus on Trump's feelings. I think a lot of this has to do with his inability to process having lost. Um, I, I mean, losing, as we know, uh, as amateur students of Trump's psychology is absolutely the worst thing that can happen to anybody. 
so I do think there's a genuine sense that uh, Donald Trump is struggling to come to terms with reality. Um, now, you, you might raise the question, is he in fact laying the groundwork for a future as a media, uh, you know, media tycoon with his own television channel, or is he positioning himself or one of his children uh, to run for president in four years? But I, I find that in general, when we do that with Donald Trump, we're almost... Um, kidding ourselves that he thinks that far ahead. Donald Trump thinks ahead one or two news cycles. And at the moment, I think this is all about his inability to come to grips with what has actually happened. And we're going to have to go through this rather um, strange process of walking him towards an acceptance of his fate, which of course is ludicrous when you think that much of the American political establishment is part of this effort, but that's where we are. And the world has really had to try and get inside the psychology of Donald Trump for the, the past uh, a few years. Um, if you put your, try and put yourself in Trump's mind, then what can he actually do in his remaining months as president and might try to do? Well, I think that he'll try to secure a legacy for himself. Um, I mean, well, first of all, perhaps he might settle some scores. You know, there's lots of uh, talk of him firing people he's unhappy with, whether it's uh, Anthony Fauci uh, or uh, Chris Ray, the head of the FBI. So there might be some score settling. Then there's the all-important question of uh, using his powers to commute or pardon uh, whether he tries to pardon himself is a kind of the most tantalizing question out there, but certainly there are other people. He suggested it's possible, hasn't he? He has, he has suggested it's possible. Um, it's one of those things that, you know, legal scholars are studying very carefully. I, I, I think there are a number of opinions around it, although some have said it does seem like uh, it's possible. Uh, and then on the foreign policy front, the only question is, you know, is there anything left for him to secure in 70 days? And the answer there is probably somewhat limited. I don't subscribe to those who think he'll uh, try some reckless act of mischief overseas. Um, and so that really doesn't leave him with a lot. I imagine most of his planning will be about his personal financial and legal future and trying to do the best he can to sort of shore up his position so that when he's a private citizen and doesn't have all the protections the presidency confers, that he still will be in relatively solid shape. Alice, is Trump's unwillingness to concede going to affect the transition? It could do, yes. Um, there are certain aspects of the transition process that are just customs and traditions. So things like um, the president inviting his successor into the White House for a discussion and, and those sorts of things. But the president also really sets a tone um, for how the more formal aspects of the transition process will proceed. And what we're seeing at the moment is that the thing that would kickstart those formal processes, which is essentially some paperwork filed by a federal agency called the General Services Administration, which would give the Biden-Harris administration some federal funding, office space, access to federal agencies and, and governments and so on, that paperwork has not yet been signed off by the head of the GSA. And we don't know when it will be. We don't know what the head of the GSA, who is a Trump political appointee, is waiting for. Are they waiting for President Trump to concede? Are they waiting for legal challenges to be exhausted? Are they even waiting for the Electoral College to meet on the 14th of December? We don't know. And that could cause potentially quite a significant delay 
to the transition process, which is a major problem given that at the moment the US is in the grip of a resurgent COVID pandemic. There are all sorts of major economic issues arising by that. Um, And so the president's petulance essentially could um, really run the risk of harming an effective transition. And it's incredibly different in tone to what we saw back in 2008 when the Obama administration was incoming and George W. Bush made a real effort to be um, very constructive in that process given the economic crisis. Yeah. Henry, uh, what has this election taught us about the US electoral system? I mean, votes are still being counted nearly a week on. Uh, We've become expert in how the different states have uh, their legislatures uh, set the the rules. what should we, what should the world make of this? Uh, something to copy as a model or something that needs reforming? Well, certainly the electoral college's distortion of how the popular vote uh, works, uh, it looks like it's going to grow even wider than it did in 2016, when, of course, Hillary Clinton won a couple of million more votes than Donald Trump, but lost by a fairly wide electoral college margin. Joe Biden, it seems, is going to win by the same electoral college margin, margin that, that Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton by in 2016, but also win the popular vote once all the votes are still counted. And there's a lot of uh, inevitably blue votes left to be counted in states like California by probably four or five percentage points. And so there's this weird disconnect between the fact that Joe Biden has probably actually won this election by really quite a thumping margin. Uh, And nevertheless, you know, just a few tens of thousands of votes in those crucial states, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, might have made this uh, another Donald Trump victory. Um, So certainly, you know, the the question of the American Electoral College is is only more pertinent, although, of course, the reality of a electoral college system, which which favours the Republican Party, as it does at the moment, uh, it means that uh, the Democrats can't win big enough uh, to, uh, especially in the Senate, uh, albeit that's a slightly different system, uh, to actually repudiate the Electoral College, which is something they would like to do. But, but no, I don't think we should lose sight, despite of uh, despite how the uh, result manifests itself via the Electoral College. I don't think we should lose sight that actually this was a pretty convincing victory, uh, and that you know. Uh, an awful lot of Americans did decide that they were tired of Donald Trump and, and, and wanted Joe Biden to be president. Yeah, well, of course, we're speaking, or I'm speaking in a country where, um, uh, you know, we first passed the post and much, much argument about whether or not that reflects uh, reflect what uh, people overall actually want. But w- what about the, 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 the mere procedure? You, you've answered the, uh, the most interesting point about the Electoral College. But um, uh, Mark, what do you reckon about the procedure of voting? Um, which has been extended this year by coronavirus? Well, I think we need to acknowledge that coronavirus is is a major reason this year was so unusual. I mean, the extreme emphasis on mail-in votes uh, was unusual. But the truth of the matter is, I think people found it very convenient. So we can expect it to be a permanent feature of American elections going forward. And part of the problem we have is we don't have a standardized uh, procedure for election uh, regulations in the U.S. Every state does it differently. Uh, and, and in the case of Pennsylvania, you had a Republican-controlled state legislature that set the rules. And the rules they set were to set aside uh, mail-in ballots, particularly those that came in uh, late uh, as in after the election day itself, although postmarked before election day, and that you couldn't even begin counting these ballots until election day. Florida obviously had a different set of rules, and that's the reason that we knew the result in Florida 
on Tuesday night. So I, I don't think it's the actual um, process of allowing mail-in ballots that's the issue. It would be great to have some standardization in the rules so that you didn't wonder why we knew about Ohio and Florida on Tuesday night, but we didn't know about Pennsylvania until Saturday. I mean, that's a function of having a federal system. There are many virtues to a federal system. This is one that's wound up confusing people um, and confusing them at a time when the president was out to delegitimize the process. So he was able to seize on these inconsistencies to raise doubt in people's minds, doubt that I think is largely unwarranted. There's very little evidence, if any, of uh, vote rigging or other fraud. Um, But unfortunately, because the rules are such a patchwork, you can put that germ of doubt in people's minds, and Trump is doing the best he can to kind of foment that. Well, it's so essential to the uh, idea of the U.S. that uh, it is a federal and and based on these states that I guess, uh, and the state's freedom to do things uh, to a large extent differently, that I guess we can't take that out of the picture. But you you can see some commentators in other countries saying, well, this might be an advertisement for democracy, but not, not (laughs) not for running it with 50 states doing different things. Um, Well, that's fascinating. Let's come on to what Biden will do. Alice, perhaps you could just take us through. Um, Democrats didn't perform as well as hoped in congressional races, and they still control the House. Um, they lost some ground there, and they have to win both the, both Georgia Senate runoff elections in January if they're going to have a majority in the Senate. How is this going to constrain what Joe Biden can do? I think initially what it means is that during this transition period, there is quite some uncertainty for the president-elect and vice-president-elect because they don't know, as you say, what will be the situation in the Senate. Um, So that will affect how they plan their legislative agenda. It may potentially also affect the nominees that they make for key positions um, because Mitch McConnell, the Senate um, majority leader, has implied over the weekend that if the Republicans retain control of the Senate, then they may potentially use effectively a veto power um, over some of Biden's key nominees and try and push him into making perhaps more moderate appointments, which could be something that spark uh, tensions with the sort of more liberal aspects of the Democratic Party. So there's that sort of set of practical considerations. The other thing that it's worth mentioning is, of course, that um, the transition team is going to have to spend an enormous amount of time dealing with COVID and dealing with the economic crisis. President-elect Biden has already indicated that that's um, his sort of big focus at the moment. But that's a very uncertain thing. It's difficult to predict how long the pandemic will last, how it will end. Um, so that just creates a really extra layer of uncertainty in what they're doing. And that will filter through to the rest of their agenda. Mark, um, the Wall Street Journal had a headline saying America disappoints the New York Times again, arguing that this was not a bad election for conservatives at all. Um, does that does that feel right? Well, 70 million plus uh, people voted for Donald Trump. Uh, and the Republican Party made gains uh, at the House in the House of Representatives, and they didn't lose the Senate. So to that extent, 
it wasn't a bad election for the Republicans. In fact, a better election than I think they expected. Um, and it shows that, um, you know, Trumpism uh, still lives in America, even if Americans have grown tired of Trump himself. Um, the ideas that propelled the Trump candidacy in 2016 are still very appealing ideas to a large part of the electorate, and in fact, the pivotal part of the electorate in several important states. Uh, you know, it's also worth pointing out that Donald Trump made some very marginal gains uh, among groups that he hadn't done so well with the first time he ran uh, African Americans. Um, and also, more importantly, Latinos, which were perhaps the critical difference in Florida, where Donald uh, Trump, uh, where the Republicans were concerned that Joe Biden might actually win. So I think that there are many way, places that the Republicans can take solace in this election outcome, uh, and they probably are doing so even though they're not allowed to voice it because uh, they're all in uh, wearing sackcloth along with Donald Trump. Um, you know, the question just is, I think that the Republicans will face, is how can they package some of the appealing ideas behind Trumpism uh, in, in a way that, uh, or in, in the form of a candidate who's acceptable to a majority or a plurality of American voters. They weren't able to do that this time around with Donald Trump. Is there a candidate who can channel some of these ideas, but do so in a way that's more acceptable to a greater number of Americans? And do you think Joe Biden is being sentimental when he talks about bipartisan spirit? I mean, after all, he, you know, he had a a big chunk of his career in the Senate in the old days when it was not ridiculous to talk about bipartisan spirit and cooperation. But some people are saying, look, that that really is uh, for the birds now. That's long gone. I don't think he's being sentimental in the, to the extent that I believe he, he truly believes in it and believes that he has the ability to deliver on it. Whether he's right about that, I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical. I think this is a Republican party that is now, uh, so dug in on the idea of resisting a Democratic majority that it's hard for me to see except for perhaps one or two areas where it's very opportunistic, where someone like Mitch McConnell would want to be part of a grand bargain with Joe Biden on anything. You know, you recall there was a moment during President Obama's uh, presidency when there was hopes for a grand bargain on uh, on an economic package, and that sort of uh, evaporated. I think that it's hard for me to see that. Now, it is worth pointing out that Joe Biden has more experience in pulling the, the, the levers of the legislative process than any president we've had since Lyndon Johnson. Uh, he has deep relationships, including crucially with Mitch McConnell himself. So if any president ever has a shot of pulling this off, it is probably Joe Biden. But after watching the Republicans over the past, you know, six years of covering the Obama White House and then these last four years, I just count me as skeptical that he's going to be able to pull it off. No, I, um, I, I can ab absolutely believe that. That rings very true. Uh, so, Henry, what, what are his first steps going to be? What's he going to do? Well, I think Joe Biden will be will be desperate to find things that he can do that don't go through the Senate. And there's actually quite a lot that he can do. Uh, I mean, he's actually promised an ast astonishing number. I think it's a sort of verbal tick. There's an amazing number of things during the campaign he said that he would do on day one. Uh, now, I don't think he will do all of these things on day one, but uh, he will rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. Uh, he uh, wants to uh, establish a new coronavirus task force. 
Uh, in fact, he's announcing some of the names who will go on to that uh, today, uh, on the day we're recording this, Monday. Um, and I do think a lot of the early moves will be about coronavirus, because whatever positive noises there might be about uh, vaccines, you know, Joe Biden will be taking over a country where the virus really is surging uh, again. Um, and there's almost a sort of, I think, mental fatigue around appreciating quite how bad the situation is, uh, you know, because it's not quite as uh, visible and the consequences aren't quite as fatal as they were in New York uh, in the early spike. Um, you know, the vi- number of daily virus cases uh, in the country is, is far higher than it's been at any point uh, through the year, really. Uh, and it's not sort of geographically focused. So I think Joe Biden will, you know, both for uh, ostentatious reasons, but also out of you know the, the reality that this is the most pressing issue facing America. I think I think his early few weeks will be concerned with taking coronavirus seriously, but also being seen to take coronavirus seriously. Okay, and Mark, what, what beyond that though? Um, so that, that's the pandemic, uh, which might come with a lot of uh, uh, money attached to it, or might be anyway. Begin with mask wearing and so on. But what about all the other stuff, the environment and and the uh, the foreign policy, where Trump absolutely made his mark? Well, as Henry said, he'll he will rejoin the Paris Climate Accord quickly, and uh, I could see him incidentally making climate change uh, one area where he and Boris Johnson might do some business together. With uh, you know Britain hosting uh, the big climate change conference uh, in twenty twenty one on foreign policy, it's going to be largely, I think, in the early going about uh, mending some fences. Uh, I think uh, he will probably fly to Berlin, Paris, and Brussels and try to uh, get the relationship with the European Union back on track. And then I think he needs to uh, make some big decisions about where he wants to position the U.S. vis-a-vis China. Uh, Donald Trump obviously had um, had kicked off a fairly uh, furious uh, trade war with the Chinese uh, and then, you know, wound it down in the context of the election with a preliminary trade agreement. Uh, I think Biden's going to have to decide where he wants to be in the economic relationship with China, but also and this might be more visible under a Biden presidency, the geostrategic relationship with China. Uh, so I think that, you know, there's all kinds of work to do internationally um, under the sort of banner of if America first uh, is is gone, is over, um, then what is the vision that replaces it? And that's not an easy answer, both because of domestic pressures uh, and because so much has changed uh, in an irrevocable sense of about America's role in the world. So I think that, you know, over the months of the Biden presidency, much of it will be dominated by the virus early on. But as time goes on, we'll begin to see the outlines of what a Biden uh, foreign policy looks like. And that'll be a very fascinating thing to watch. Well, let's come on to one point, um, which you uh, absolutely justifiably haven't mentioned yet, but uh, the UK's relationship. Um, and let's, let's dig in a bit to how the UK and Boris Johnson should respond to that. Henry, what do you reckon? What's the mood in the US around the UK? I have been really struck uh, ever since I came here, really, uh, about a year ago, uh, that really the, almost the entirety of liberal America uh, sort of reflexively views Boris Johnson as uh, a British facsimile of Donald Trump. Uh, you know, as does Donald Trump, for that matter. You know, he called him Britain Trump on the day he became prime minister. 
Um, and that's a real image problem for, for Boris Johnson and the UK government, to say the very least. Uh, you know, it, the, the, the Biden administration is going to be populated by people uh, who will be jubilant that they have booted Donald Trump out of uh, power in the US and who view Boris Johnson as the British version. Um, that's not an ideal starting base for a relationship. It's a well-worn point, but I don't think it can be made enough. You know, really, the people in politics, out of politics, I come across here, you know, they don't have an especially nuanced sense of Boris Johnson beyond, oh, yeah, British sort of shape-shifting version of Trump. Um, now, I know the reality is a bit more nuanced than that. And certainly, as Mark's saying, uh, you know, there are foreign policy priorities on which actually they are much more closely aligned than Boris Johnson and Donald Trump ever have been. It's not just Paris, it's also the Iran nuclear deal and just generally the strength of multilateral institutions or at the very least uh, multilateral uh, institutions such as NATO. Um, so look, I, 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 think, I think Joe Biden will be, uh, you know, I think the idea that as, as someone of Irish heritage, he loads Britain is just, is just nonsense. Uh, it doesn't stand up to his record. Uh, but, you know, I think he will be sceptical of Boris Johnson uh, and uh, I think there will be a lot of work needed uh, for the UK government, you know, not just to win round Joe Biden, but also actually to convince the sort of broader Democratic Party orbit uh, that, that Britain is a country uh, who they can do good business with and, you know, with whom their priorities uh, in the broader world are actually aligned. So do you think a trade deal is really um, one way down the line? Alice, what do you think? Well, I think it's important um, to recognise, as Henry says, that there certainly is a bit of an image problem with Boris Johnson when it comes to the new Biden um, administration. Um, I think it's also worthwhile to recognise that Joe Biden is a quite a pragmatic person. As you mentioned earlier, Bronwyn, he was in the Senate for a long time. He chaired the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Um, he's also served as vice president for eight years. So he has a grasp of foreign relations and I think will understand the need to separate out um, some of the more perhaps personal tensions from those broader issues and find areas where they can do business with the UK. When it comes specifically to a trade deal, I think we also should not perhaps kid ourselves in the UK um, about how far up the list of the new administration's priorities a trade deal will be. There are some huge domestic issues that President-elect Biden is going to have to grasp first. Um, and trade generally is just not really a subject that has particularly emerged during this election campaign as a big theme. So while it's understandably dominating lots of our conversations here in Britain at the moment, I'm not sure the same can be said for Washington. No, I'm sure, I'm sure that's right. Uh, we're trying to dig into what Boris Johnson uh, should, should do. Mark, how would you advise the Prime Minister? Well, as I said earlier, I think there are a few areas where um, Boris Johnson can uh, perhaps find ways to collaborate with the United States. And I think this gets at the heart of the challenge for the UK. I don't think it's so much that there's going to be pers personal tension between these two leaders uh, or that the fact that, that Britain uh, voted in favor of Brexit somehow puts it on the wrong side of the ideological balance. I think the bigger question is, how does the UK stay relevant to the United States? How does it prove that it's still a go-to partner 
for the U.S. And this is where there's a little bit of an issue because if um, you know, that Britain uh, played this role of sort of uh, interpreting Europe to the United States and interpreting the United States to Europe uh, in the last few decades, it will play less of that role outside the EU than it did as a member of the EU. Um, nevertheless, there are these other places where Britain and the U.S. still have shared values where I think they really can work together. Uh, one area is in the area, you know, human rights vis a vis China, for example. Um, another area, as, as Henry said, is insecurity. I think the U.S. has and will view Britain as it, the key other member of the NATO alliance, an alliance that will, under President Biden, be a secure and lasting one. Uh, and uh, and again, in the cl- in the climate discussion. So I think that if you're Boris Johnson, what you need to do is figure out how can I be relevant to the United States? How can I help Biden, whether it's presenting a coalition of democracies against Xi Jinping in China or Vladimir Putin in Russia? How can I help him uh, in the climate discussion um, and and focus in on those areas? Because the the threat here is not that Britain and the U.S. are going to be at odds. That's not going to happen. The threat is that the U.S. isn't going to care that much about Britain anymore. And that's what Boris Johnson wants to avoid. Let's come on, Mark, to the question that you raised right at the beginning, which is Trumpism after Trump. For now, you know, he could be back in theory. Um, and what might uh, survive, good and bad, um, uh, after after his uh, his tenure? Um, you know, what what uh, how this might have changed uh, the US. Um, Alice, what are, what are your thoughts? I think one really interesting thing to look out for will be whether we continue to see very high levels of political engagement and political involvement um, in the US. So this election turnout has been huge in what is historically a country that among kind of major Western democracies tends to have quite low turnout. And alongside that, we've seen all sorts of um, protests on a range of issues. You know, over the last few years, people have been very engaged in the process, even if they might be coming at that from different ideological perspectives. It will be interesting to see if that continues. Um, if we sort of over the next four years see a much more kind of stable and relatively traditional administration, I think the one big thing that will change is that question of stability. Um, this after January the 20th feels like a world where we will not be waking up every morning and immediately checking Twitter to see what the president of the United States has said. Um, there is a sense that, you know, things will be much more kind of stable. We will revert to some of the usual ways of doing business. Um, the question, of course, is, is how the US population views that. Do they want to go back to those sorts of usual ways of doing business? Do they want that stability? Um, or do they, as we hear from many Republican voters, like the way that President Trump has supposedly been very blunt and told it like it is? Thanks, Henry. What do you think? I, I'm I'm sceptical, actually, uh, about the viability of Trumpism without Trump, um, except if he runs again in 2024, which is very possible, by the way, and I think he'll hold the possibility open for as long as possible to keep the publicity flowing for as long as possible. Um, But I think, you know, yes, an extraordinary number of people have turned out to vote for Donald Trump, uh, and that's a really important thing to be understood and to be analysed. But I just think there is a sort of, you know, okay, Donald Trump's Trump's policy combination is heterodox and unique, 
Um, but there is a sort of special source to his personality as well, uh, which I just can't see Mike Pence or Tom Cotton or even Donald Trump Jr. Uh, or Ivanka Trump, in fact, replicating. You know, Donald Trump's get out the vote video on the day of election was three minutes of uh, spliced together clips of him dancing to YMCA. Um, it's ridiculous, but it clearly works for millions of people. Uh, and I can't see that, uh, you know, once, once you, once you take the, take the message away from the medium, um, I really don't see how it carries. And so I'm a little bit more skeptical about the idea that, that Trumpism without Trump will be as electorally, electorally viable as Trumpism with Trump has proved. Mark, what do you reckon? I guess what I'd say is that, um, I think that what Trump did, um, with, you know, very effectively, uh, was, uh, speak a language that a certain, uh, aggrieved part of the population, uh, really responded to. And those grievances are not going to go away. Um, the percentage or the portion of American society that feels that they've been left behind, their jobs have been automated or offshored, uh, they're living less well than their parents did. Um, they're, they're looking at communities that are much browner and blacker than they were comfortable with. All of those trends, um, will not only remain, but probably accelerate, uh, in the coming years. And so the question is, um, how do you appeal to those voters without crossing into xenophobia, uh, or, uh, outright bigotry? Um, is there a model for a Republican party to speak to those voters, and for that matter, for a Democratic Party to speak to those voters. I mean, one of the fascinating things that Trump has almost executed in American politics is an inversion of the traditional roles of the parties. The Democrats were the tribune of the working man and spoke to those kinds of people. Uh, and they've now increasingly become the party of metropolitan elites, uh, while the Republicans uh, very effectively spoke to that portion of the electorate. But they did it in a way, ultimately, with Donald Trump that was uh, full of race baiting and xenophobia. Um, can you find a formula, if you're the Republicans, that allows you to keep that appeal without crossing over into that sort of unpleasant territory? Uh, to that extent, I agree with Henry that Trump was very much a unique and probably irreplaceable character. Uh, I don't see Tom Cotton walking that line as effectively, but certainly that will be the great ideological battle within the Republican Party over the next few years. And to that extent, Donald Trump's own future really plays into it, because as long as he remains uh, as a sort of a kingmaker and perhaps even a future candidate, it's hard to imagine anyone else emerging in the party to carry out that task of of kind of presenting a new face. Um, but at any rate, I do think the ideas were powerful ones. I don't think they're going away. Um, the trick will be to uh, to present them in a more palatable way. Great. Well, thank you for that. We'll have to come on some other time to uh, uh, his, uh, his legacy around the world, the uh, deals in the Middle East between uh, Israel and um Arab countries, the relations with China and all that, and the relations with Britain. But that's going to be all we've got time for now. Um, as I said, not going to be our last, last word on this. My huge thanks to Alice Lilly, Mark Landler, and Henry Zeffman. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks to all of you at home for listening. And if you enjoy this and want to hear more of our discussions, please do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. 
there are a lot of new shows for you to listen to there, including a very timely event on how the government uses science to inform its policies. And you can find all our work at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. That's it for today. No predictions about what happens next in the US for Joe Biden and Donald Trump, but one prediction of what happens next at the IFG. We'll be watching closely and watching Parliament as well. Thanks very much.